Well, hey, everybody. So good to see all of you out there. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Jonathan mentioned earlier that this is, uh, this is the first week of a new sermon series. It's going to carry us through the fall, and we're really, really excited about it for a lot of reasons that given the amount of time I've got left to me in this service, I'm going to save for future weeks to unfold for you. But let, let me just suffice it to say that I, we're excited for this series in part because of the way it'll complement what we've been considering together in Acts over the last few months. Because if Acts has told us anything, it's told us of the spread of the kingdom that, that God promised he would bring and that Jesus came to establish. We've seen that kingdom begin to spread over the ancient world and we'll watch it spread to the ends of the earth. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus teaches parables, he's teaching us what that kingdom is like. He's giving us an early look, a prequel, if you will, to what he's about to build, beginning with his own life and death and resurrection, and then through the work of the church that we've been tracing together through Acts. I want you to turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. This is going to be the, the, the first parable we consider together. Uh, but I want to take a moment here and say that I recognize maybe, maybe that even the word parable is new to you. So, so if you're hearing this series about the parables of Jesus, I think, well, what is a parable? That doesn't sound like something that I encounter in, in my world. Let me just say right now, it's pretty straightforward and simple. A parable is just a type of story used to make a point. It's a kind of analogy. A parable takes one thing and lays it over side another thing so that you can see what this other thing is like. It takes something that maybe isn't familiar to you and illustrates it through a, uh, through a story that, that, that is familiar, that is relatable. For Jesus, when he uses parables, what he's most often talking about is the kingdom of God that he's come to proclaim and to establish. And what I want to do today is to introduce you to what parables are and how they work and how you can make the most of our weeks together learning from them on Sundays. I tend to do this at the beginning of every new sermon series. Those of you who know me well know that I tend to geek out over these sermons. They tend to be my favorite ones all year. I always refer to this as syllabus day. This is the day where we get to learn what we're going to be learning. There's actually a really strategic decision, though, behind, behind this, this decision to, to make uh, the first sermons of, of a new sermon series uh, an exploration of what kind of material we're going to be looking at and how to make the most of it, how to learn from it. Really, the reason I think it's so important for us to do is that, is that we take you guys seriously in your role in our church, taking what you hear on a Sunday like this one and using it in your week. And not just in your week for your own personal relationship with Jesus, but using it in your own ministry to others in our church. We often talk about our responsibility to one another as, as, as part of a, a mutual discipleship where everyone in our church is responsible for discipling everyone else. Giving you tools to make the most of a series like this one is us trying to put into your hands what you're going to need to do what you've promised to do as part of our church. In other words, we think of you not as those, those characters in WALL-E. You, know, you guys know the movie WALL-E, the post-apocalyptic Pixar movie. It's great. Near the beginning of the movie, you've got, you've got this, this space station where everyone's escaped from the destroyed earth to live on forever, hooked into some sort of screens with like an endless supply of Dr. Pepper, and they've just been sitting there consuming. And now their bodies are just like jelly. They're, they don't need their bones anymore, so they don't really work anymore. And they're just blobs, just taking in more and more and more. We think more highly of you than that. We don't imagine you to be one of these Wally characters. No, you take in order to give. And we want to do what we can to help you, equip you for the ministry that God has given you, in your, not just in your own life, but in our church. So today, what I'm going to do is overview for you 
what a parable is like and how to, what are the principles you can use to come to understand it. But all that said, I want to say one more thing before we get into our content for today. Even though we're going to be looking at a kind of bird's eye view of what parables are and how to make the most of them through the series that's to come, I have decided to choose one parable in particular that I think is just a wonderful illustration of the themes that we'll see and the, the kinds of patterns we'll recognize in parables throughout Luke's gospel. That's why I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 7 because in this parable, it's a short but sweet little parable, we get a nice bird's eye view of what we're going to see together for the next few months. And what I want to do is use this parable to give you, to give you an overview of what parables are for, to give you an overview of how parables work, and finally, an overview of how we are to respond to parables. Those are the three questions I want to answer using this small parable in Luke chapter 7 to get the answers. What are parables for? How do parables work? And how should we respond to parables? I want to begin by reading both the setup for this parable and the parable itself. So I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and then read for now through verse 42. This is the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat, asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This is God's word. You may be seated. One of my favorite things about this little parable and its setup is that it shows us in a really clear but concise way how parables function in the teaching of Jesus, what he uses parables for. Jesus used parables to challenge common assumptions among the people of Israel about what God's kingdom would be like. That's what he used them for, to challenge common assumptions among God's people about what God's kingdom would be like. Most of the parables that Luke gives to us, that he records for us, come in the middle section of his, of his gospel. This is a part of the gospel where Jesus is moving around all over Israel, sizing up the life of God's people, seeing how they act and how they speak of God's ways. Time and again, we see him, especially in conversations with or, a group, with or, with or about a group called the Pharisees. We see him saying to people, the kingdom, it's not what you think it is. You speak of it. You say you look for it, but it isn't what you think it is. Parables are wonderful tools for doing this kind of work because of how our minds tend to operate. This kind of challenging work where, where you take someone who's got one concept and you want to replace it with another one. Hey, 
Sometimes what it, what, what it really takes is a story that gets beneath the things that a person believes, beneath the arguments that they have for and against, and hits them at the level of their intuition or their gut. I mean, as much as many of us like to think of ourselves as forming our beliefs by, by just looking at, at different facts, right? One set over here, pros, one set over here, pros, cons, cons, and whichever, whichever series of facts is the longest, whichever one seems to be the most compelling, then from a neutral position, we'll just say, okay, I'll go with that one. We like to think of ourselves as forming our beliefs that way, but, but that just really isn't how it works, at least not, not normally. Our convictions run a lot deeper than that. They're affected by, by what happens in our gut at the level of our intuition, at the level of assumptions that wire us to see some things as compelling and other things as not so compelling. So that means when it comes to changing somebody's mind about something, well, I mean, it, it never hurts to argue. It never hurts to carefully assess evidence and present it in the most persuasive way you can. But it's usually not the best approach to just tell them they're wrong or even line up the arguments on your side. Better to aim somehow for their gut, for the heart, to use the Bible's language. And there to, to hit at the underlying assumptions their beliefs come from. Midway through the, the Civil War, reputedly, Abraham Lincoln had the chance to meet Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. There was an abolitionist movement before Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote that famous novel. There were plenty of arguments, good ones, made against slavery and why it should be, for why it should be abolished. There was a lot of back and forth happening in speeches and in pamphlets and in books. But when Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, who put a story behind the abolitionist argument, he said, so this is the little lady who started this big war. It took a story to challenge the assumptions, to challenge expectations about what slavery was and what it was like and to put flesh on arguments against it. That's what Jesus is doing in these parables. Rather than just coming right at him, he's not, he's not just saying the kingdom isn't what you think. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, it's like this. Instead of just coming right at it, he tells them stories that build analogies that open up a deeper way of seeing things. And you can see this at work already in the setup that we've just looked at. Just those few verses before we got to the parable of the money lender and the two debtors. A notoriously sinful woman finds out that Jesus is eating dinner with a famous Pharisee in the area. She comes straight into the house to see him. The affection she shows Jesus is scandalous. She grabs him, touches his body. She's weeping over his feet. She's using her hair to, to dry him. She's pouring out ointment on him. She's kissing him nonstop. Meanwhile, the host, Simon, looks on in judgment. He sees what Jesus allows this woman to do to him, and he draws his own conclusion. Any man who would let this woman do that to him is not a prophet. This man's not from God. See, Simon knows in his gut that God doesn't want behavior like this. As a Pharisee, he's already got a notion of what God's kingdom is like. The Pharisees believed that God's kingdom, which they were waiting for and working hard to see brought in, depended on a strict separation between the good and the bad. It's waiting on us to, to, to reclaim the righteousness to which God's law has called us and to banish the unrighteousness that has so far kept us impure. The kingdom depends on keeping people like her 
out of the way. He knows that in his gut. And he believes that a prophet, one who's worth any of our time and attention, well, that prophet would know better too. So verse 39, if he were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. Jesus comes at Simon and his assumptions about the kingdom, not by mounting some sort of argument, not even by telling him straightforwardly that he's wrong, but by telling him a story. That's what the parables are for. And friends, we need it just like Simon did. We are not above the kind of mistaken assumptions that Simon models for us here. We're not above saying things the right way with our mouths, even thinking the right things with our minds, but in our hearts, believing a different gospel altogether, serving a different kingdom than this one. Our default mode remains that of Simon. We tend to assume that there's a good group of people and an evil one. Even if our standards for who's in or who's out shift over time, we tend to assume, like Simon, that you get what you pay for. And we tend to want, like Simon does, to belong to some sort of inner circle that, that we really do belong to, that says yes to us because of something true of us and no to others because of something true to them. I think it's a core part of why our, our national conversations are as polarized and partisan as they are now. That's revealing a deep craving for belonging that says yes to some and no to others that sets up an us versus them that, that justifies our own superiority to others. Friends, it's in all of us. And it affects our view of Christianity potentially in ways we've never put words to, maybe not even seen for ourselves. And that's why we need parables because parables don't work the same way as normal arguments. They come in under the radar and hit you where it hurts to show you what you really believe even if you didn't know it. I want to talk to you now for a moment about how parables work. I've explained what they're for, but how do they get this work done? One of the most helpful guides for understanding the parables that I've seen is a book by a New Testament scholar named Craig Blomberg. Uh, it's, it's a book that we'll probably refer to a good bit throughout the series because it's so helpful, so useful to teachers for, for getting some of the principles in play, uh, get our minds around them, and then, and then finding things we can teach you that will help you in your own study of the parables. What I want to do to show you how parables work is, is introduce you to one of his main insights that that. I believe is just such a helpful tool for us, not just today, but for the rest of this series. It, one of the things that Blomberg puts on our radar is the danger of, of paying attention to the wrong details. It's clear that the parables are here to make a point. So, you know, they're stories that are made up by a teacher who wants to use these details to convince you of something. But, but what are the details that really matter? How do we know which details he chose to make a point and which ones are just sort of filling out the story to make it a compelling story that we can track with? How do we know what we're supposed to pay attention to when we come to a parable? That's a real danger, actually. The danger that he highlights is not a hypothetical one, but one that's affected Christian interpretations for a long, long time, picking up on things that just weren't the point and maybe along the way missing what is. So how do we know what we're looking for when we come to a parable. One of the most important things to know about how parables work, and what I want to show you in Luke chapter 7 this afternoon, is, is that you, you want to identify this, the, the main characters in the story and what's going on with them. If you can figure out the main character, 
What are they doing? What are they saying? What's happening to them? That will be the most important key to figuring out what Jesus means to teach us through these stories that he tells. In fact, let me push this one, one layer further. There will often be, in the parables, three different characters meant to reflect something true about God. That'd be character number one. Something true about those who believe in him, trust in him, and find a place in his kingdom. That'd be character number two. And those who reject his kingdom, those who relate to him in the wrong way, those, those who don't see it, don't, don't get it, don't belong to it. Often we're going to see three characters relating truth about God and two different ways to respond to him. One of these ways is going to typically paint a picture of how the Pharisees are thinking and behaving. They're the ones who in their own minds believe they, that they are in on the kingdom, that they're the insiders who get it and their job is to tell everyone else about it. Jesus is often showing, no, it's the Pharisees' way that, that doesn't get who God is and what his kingdom is really like. It's actually this group over here. You want to be like them and not like them. So let me just show you, just so you can get your mind around this, let me show you how these three characters are playing out in the parable we've just read together. In Luke chapter 7, you see this pattern. It's short, just a couple of verses, but it's all there. Let me read those verses for you again. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? You see the pattern? You got a moneylender, character number one. He's the one to whom the debt is owed. You've got a debtor who owes him 500 denarii. That's a lot of money. That's about 500 days average wages. And you got another one that owes him 50 denarii, about 50 days average wages. Despite the difference in how much they owe, neither one of them can pay. They're both unpayable debts. And in response to both of these debts, the money lender cancels what they owe, forgives it, sets them free from it. One of the most helpful things about Luke chapter 7 for seeing how parables work is that this is one of those cases where the master teacher actually interprets it for us. Jesus leads us right down the line he wants us to follow so we get the right point. He, he ends his parable with a question. Who you suppose will love him more? And Simon, he's tracking with him. He's walking right into it, but he's, he's following along well enough. The one whose debt was larger. That's who will love him more. Right you are. And then Jesus explains what he meant all along. Jesus, from these verses, paints a contrast between how Simon treated Jesus when Jesus entered his home and how this notoriously sinful woman treated Jesus when she came up to him. And right at the center between these two ways of relating, Jesus places himself let me pick up in verse 43. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see the way Jesus compares these two characters? And lays them over right on top of Simon and this woman. Simon was unimpressed with Jesus. So much so that he withheld basic kindness that was expected by hosts. He didn't give him water for his feet. His feet would have been nasty coming into this house after walking around where those feet walked. It's customary to give water to wash. He didn't. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't anoint his head with oil when he came in. All these things were normal for hosts to do for guests that they cared about. We aren't told why Simon invited him in in the first place. Surely he had some sort of level of interest in who Jesus was and what he was doing, but it's not a stretch to imagine. He wanted to see for himself what all the fuss was about to see if he might pick up a new insight or two, maybe, or at the very least, confirm that there's nothing to see here. But whatever he wanted when he invited Jesus in, the way he treats him when he comes through the door shows he's not buying it yet. He's thoroughly so far unimpressed. He's still the judge in the judgment seat waiting to see what Jesus can produce. And his posture is more like, so, let's see what you've got. Show me. Convince me to care. This woman, by contrast, Where Simon is unimpressed, she is absolutely undone with love for Jesus. She wets his nasty feet with her own tears, which pour like rainfall, the text says. This is ugly crying, uncontrolled. She lets down her hair to wipe them. That's a major taboo in this context. It's akin to going topless today. She pays no attention to what others might think. She doesn't care and pours out a precious ointment that would have been hard for her to come by all over his feet. What's the difference between these two characters? Simon has an experienced forgiveness. Simon feels no need for what Jesus came to offer. This woman, against every expectation of her own community, and of her own heart has been forgiven. In verse 47, Jesus drives the point home. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He doesn't deny that she's a sinner. He doesn't dispute Simon on that point. He doesn't minimize her sin. He merely says her many sins are forgiven. And you can tell that's true because of how much she loves me. She has no chance of denying her sins and nowhere to hide them from everybody else. Jesus sees all of them when she enters that room. And Jesus forgives her. There is no other response except the one that she's given. He's the only audience. She cares not for what others think. Friends, you can see who's been forgiven by how they relate to Jesus, the Messiah. You can tell who's been forgiven by how they relate to the one who came to make forgiveness available to everybody who sees their need for it. 
What matters for this kingdom is not what Simon thought really mattered. It's not the list of accomplishments that you tally throughout your life. It's not the length of your resume of failure. What matters for this kingdom is whether you've been forgiven by Jesus. It's the only way in. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this parable and to all of them? Friends, we must be careful here. The parables of Jesus are one of the main reasons that Jesus is famous for his skill as a teacher. He deserves that reputation as a skilled teacher. We do well to learn from him. But the same thing could be said of Plato or Benjamin Franklin or Gandhi or whoever else. Famous teachers, well worth our time to pick and choose insights that they may dispense. That's how we tend to treat good teachers. Use them to cobble together our own philosophy of life that works for us. And if that's how we approach Jesus, then we'll miss the point of the parables. These parables are meant to confront us with an all or nothing decision. At the core of that decision is Jesus and who he is to us. He is at the center of these two different responses to him. Parables are like mirrors so that we can see ourselves in the characters and ask of ourselves, will we relate to Jesus and his kingdom like a Pharisee? Or will we relate to Jesus and his kingdom like one who needs and receives and then gives grace upon grace? Will you follow this down with me for a few more minutes? Let me ask you, will you relate to Jesus like Simon? For Pharisees like Simon... The kingdom was something like a reward. It's basically a payment for services rendered. I obey, I'm in. I'll enjoy the blessings of the kingdom that way. Another way to say that might be, God owes me. I obey, and he's in my debt. That's what makes Jesus' parable so subversive. God is the one who is owed, and he's owed everything. Simon is the one who's in debt. His sin weighs far more than he realizes. Will you relate to Jesus as Simon does? That will depend on how you see your sin. Friends, please don't underestimate the power of sin to deceive you about sin. With my mind and with my words, it is so easy for me to say, I'm not perfect. Who is? Of course I'm a sinner. Maybe easy for you too. But in your heart, do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you have an easier time acknowledging I'm not perfect than acknowledging an imperfection someone else brings to your attention? Do you find yourself often justifying and explaining and adding context in which you, you believe that what you did really does make sense? Or do you find yourself emphasizing standards that you know you can meet, minimizing those that you know you have more trouble with? Do you find yourself comparing to others, especially those that you know are visibly, obviously just worse than you are? Like Maybe I'm not perfect, but... Secretly, I know and assure myself, I'm not, I'm not that bad, right? The strategies we develop are creative and various and powerful, but as one pastor put it, they all boil down to the same thing. We tend to craft for ourselves a version of God and what his kingdom is like 
that we can live with without being in debt to him. One of the best clues to this posture in your heart is that Jesus won't seem like a big deal to you while the sins of other people against you definitely will be. Are you more moved by the forgiveness Jesus offers you or by the sins of others against you? Friends, if there's little gratitude toward God as there was here with Simon, there will be little grace toward others. The more entitled you are toward God, the more demanding of and often disappointed by others. But there is another way. You could relate to Jesus as this woman has. Will you? Perhaps you're thinking, well, yeah, at one level, absolutely. I know what it is to be a mess. I know what it feels like to have a life that's defined by my failures that everybody knows about and I can't deny or hide from. Perhaps you're all too acquainted with shame. If you are, friend, be careful. There will be well-meaning advisors who offer to help you with that problem. They may tell you to let go of the past and to move on. There's still time to turn your life around. They may tell you not to worry about what other people think, that the only path to freedom is to forgive yourself and to move on. They may tell you that it's unhealthy to reflect on your sin, as if self-awareness about sin were the problem and not the issues underlying it. But Jesus offers you another way, a fundamentally different sort of kingdom. It's not like that at all. In his kingdom, freedom comes not through minimizing sin, not through obscuring sin, but through fully acknowledging it before the one who has the right to forgive you. So if you are painfully aware this afternoon of the mess that you've made of your life, you, friend, are closer to this kingdom than you realize. Indeed, you're nearly there. You have only to let him forgive you. To acknowledge the ugly truth and give it up to him rather than punish yourself with it. He will gladly take it from your shoulders. Friends, each week when we come to another parable, we are going to be confronted with this choice. How will we relate to Jesus? Who is Jesus to us Every parable comes with a warning. Not like that. Not like Simon. There's no life, no freedom, no future in his posture. But at the very same moment that these parables warn us, they invite us in. And this invitation comes to absolutely everybody without exception. You you are welcome in this kingdom if you have faith. Let us pray that the God who offers this freedom to us will give us the faith to believe it. Father, we, we do pray to you that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to believe that there is a kingdom in which we have a part because of who Jesus is 
despite all that we are on our own. We pray that you would protect us from wanting a larger role than you've given us to play. We pray that you would protect us from despising the humility that's required to come in as this woman has. And we pray that instead you would give us the freedom that comes from trusting Jesus can see it all and forgive it all. And that he can carry a load that would otherwise crush us. We pray for this sight now, for his name's sake, so that he gets the glory and the love from us that he deserves. And we pray now in his name. Amen.